You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Like most boys of my generation, I played guns, or good guys and bad guys, with a gang of friends. All of us engaged in battle with an earnestness that verged on solemnity. That we were playing this particular game during the early days of the Second World War must have given our mock killing and dying a particular resonance. What I recall even better than the games is my mother listening to the news, often with other women whose husbands were overseas, as if they didn't want to listen alone. I can still remember the undercurrent of fear I picked up from them, the fear that the men might be killed and that Hitler would defeat us. Four years after the war, I had a real gun, my Kui 22 rifle that was known as a plinker because of the sound it made when you hit a tin can. On holidays, I wandered the countryside with it, searching for rabbits, squirrels, and the occasional crow, although the latter were generally too wary. I was 14 years old, and I wouldn't call this activity of mine a killing spree exactly, but I was certainly callous. In particular, I remember a black squirrel pressed flat against the bowl of a tree, holding on with its small legs stretched out on either side of its body, its face turned towards me, its mouth uttering a rattling call of alarm, it flicked its tail angrily. All of this activity stopped when I squeezed the trigger. It's quite possible I didn't even go over to see where it fell. Being an accurate shot, I knew it would be dead. I had no doubt of that, and I certainly wasn't going to eat it or make a hat out of it. I killed it atavistically because I wanted to or needed to. Moreover, killing was easy because I could do it impersonally, without touching flesh and blood. Had I caught a rabbit in my hands, I wouldn't have bludgeoned it to death or slit its throat. So what was I up to? Graham Gibson is the author of Five Legs, Perpetual Motion, Gentleman Death, and the Bedside Book of Birds. He's a past president of Penn Canada and has been a council member of the World Wildlife Fund of Canada. He's chairman of the Pele Island Bird Observatory. His newest book is The Bedside Book of Beasts. Thank you for joining me, Graham. It's a great pleasure. Graham, this book and The Bedside Book of Birds are books of a unique genre, and they give away that genre in the title. They're bedside books. Mm -hmm. These are not your average books, not meant to be read in the way that other books are read, aren't they? No, that's true. Uh, they are subtitled a miscellany, which is, which is generally a, 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 a peculiar assemblage of various different kinds of writing and of images, and that's certainly true of these books. Well, also, too, they're not books that we would read you can read them cover to cover, mm. but they're also books that you can dip in. And I like this idea of a bedside book because when you're reading this book just before you go to sleep, it is a collection of myths, legends, poems, facts, pictures. These are ways to immerse yourselves in the animal side of mm. our world before you enter unconsciousness. And I think it's a really interesting idea of to do that. Well, I I, one of the, I think once people have read through it, which I hope many will do, uh, in whatever order they like, 
I think it becomes clear that there is a, a kind of argument in each of those books, mm-hmm. uh, and, and the, uh, or, or a, a line of thought, and it has to do with our relationship with the natural world, with birds or beasts. Um, but I, I, I didn't want it, and I don't want it to be a lecturing kind of thing. I want it to be uh, uh, entertaining and surprising, uh, so that that whatever the the quote unquote message, and I hate that word, might be. It comes upon you in an agreeable fashion. It's a it's a really unique way. I, I think a great way to um, say something through images. I, I what's what's interesting to me to me is that since both these books are about you know the natural world, the animal world, um, they speak to us using very sophisticated language and pictures, but yet in a kind of natural, almost atavistic fashion by mixing up these different kind of little prose excerpts. A, a, a lot, I, mean, I think the longest prose excerpt is about four pages, mm-hmm. not much more than that. I think what it is in a way that, that it, it, it's a, it's a, it stimulates thought. A mm-hmm. short piece like that will stimulate thought, and then you will come on to another piece which adds to that thought or, or makes you question it or think about it. And so that you are, you're not doing it necessarily intellectually. I mean, you, you have an emotional relationship with a bit of prose or a poem or, or as part of somebody's travel journal. Uh, and then your next thing, you have something surprisingly different, but there is a resonance between the two. And, and the mind doesn't necessarily tell you what that resonance is. You must feel it. That's, that's what I think is very interesting about these books, is they uh, make an intellectual argument, and they do make intellectual arguments. They, they're, it's very clear mm-hmm. what each of these books is, is about, mm-hmm. but they make that intellectual argument on an emotional and natural and almost dreamlike and mythic level. I hope so. I, mean, <clears throat> I'm, 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 I, I like to hear that, actually. <laughs> um, we, we, we learn through, through uh, experience, and then we think about it afterwards, I think, on some level. And and with short pieces like that, the reader is able to experience randomly here and there um, uh, something that that enters into us on also emotional or, or almost physical level. Uh, and the mind then has to make sense perhaps afterwards. But if you then go into something that's different right away, then the text of one is set against the text of the other, or one of the one of the paintings, one of the images, the the, the statues of of uh, lion-headed men from thirty thousand years ago, which suddenly is sitting there for you, uh, and and so that it, it it's I I hope and I think it stimulates all different kinds of all different kind parts of the brain, and 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 changes things for the brain fairly quickly. It, it's an interesting way to. This is a very much a, these are both very much book books. Mm-hmm. What you accomplish in these books is something that you really can't accomplish through any other medium, I think. And that's something that also very much interests me. Could you talk about how you came to creating this particular kind of book? I mean, what what inspired you to to just put together something of this kind of the miscellany as you put it? Well, it it it, start, it started uh with the bird book, of course. And and I I was a bird watcher. I became a bird watcher late for my generation. I was in I was in my mid thirties, um, and when I did that, I, I suddenly bec- I discovered how many people were bird watchers. Before I became a bird watcher, I thought it was a very peculiar thing to do, um, and then I discovered how many were doing it, and then I started to think, what is the attraction? What is the attraction? Why are they important to us? 
Uh, why does why are they in T. S. Eliot's poetry and they're in Yeats and they're in the the, the Christian Bible and they're and they're in the the uh, creation mythologies of, of of Middle Eastern religions? Why are they there? I mean, what is it about them? And so what the, my thought was, I I'm not going to try and argue what it is. I'm going to try and find out and demonstrate what it is by going to as wide a range of sources as I can of other people writing about birds and, 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 and other people painting pictures of them or else they, they, how they're represented in, in, in religious iconography. Uh, and, and so it was, it was uh, uh, the purpose uh, was to put together a collection that would answer the question for me and 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 then hopefully uh, stimulate others to to consider it as well. Now, one of the things <clears throat> that uh, I like about uh, both these books are, are you know the kind of what what you get out of the flow uh, uh, of the books. You know the the uh, the, the overall feels. And, and, and for example, look, talk to me uh, about you know. As you put together this bird book, what did you discover about birds that makes them important to you and to us? And how did you figure out that connection between you, the individual, and us as humanity? Okay. Well, I, the, I think the thing is, I was a novelist for, for as you as mentioned at the beginning, for the for the first uh, 35, 40 years of my writing life, and 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 novelists have to assume that that what they write out of their own experience and out of their own mind. Uh, is going to be shared by their readers to a certain extent. That our common humanity or our, our common culture um, will 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 help make the connections, and 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 the same thing is true with the, the writing about the birds. I'm, I my assumption is that if I find something interesting, then there's going to be, uh, one hopes, a reasonable number of people out there that will also find it interesting, uh, or revealing. Uh, the the. I think I think the main the main thing about this form is, is that it, it it allowed me to go to all kinds of cultures I don't know anything about. I could take things from 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 Indian uh, uh, mythology. Uh, I could take writing by by a, a Latin American writer. Uh, I could uh, a, a Christian uh, Dr. Johnson, uh, Dr. Uh, what's his name? Not Johnson. We're on tape, aren't we? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the Dr. Livingston, uh, a, a Christian missionary in Africa, with, with the Beast Book, that that uh, we, we, I I couldn't invent his feelings. I couldn't cre- uh, create them properly in a short excerpt like that. So I can get other people and other cultures to tell me what I want to pass on to to the reader. Uh, let's talk about the Book of Beasts. This is—I uh, I love the uh, the uh, Voltaire quote that that mm-hmm. that opens the mm-hmm. the piece. Um, could you've got the book to hand? Yeah. Could you read that for us? I envy the beasts two things: their ignorance of evil to come, and their ignorance of what is said about them. <laughs> yeah, I like it. So tell us what tell us about finding that quote. You know, I can't remember. I I did so much reading. And, and I called upon everybody I knew uh, who, who was a, a great reader of, of, of a wide range of books. And I said, here's what I'm doing. If you can lead me to any text, please do. Uh, and it may well be that that came from, uh, through that form. Or it may also be that I, I mean, it really is, I look back on both of those books, and I was utterly immersed in tracking stuff down. Uh, I mean, there are 100 and 
10 or 15 prose excerpts in, in this book. And I'll bet there are between six and 10 for, uh, that I discarded for each one of them. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's probably a little bit of hyperbole there, but, but there's at least three or four for, for them. Um, because what I, I didn't want to do anything, I didn't want to include anything that people would say, oh, yeah, I know that piece. Mm-hmm. And what I want, and we, people will recognize some, but I really wanted it to be fresh. I wanted it to be different. Uh, so that 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 uh, you were you're always discovering something slightly new. One of the things that I discovered reading this book once again is the incredible, gorgeous art of Audubon. Oh my God, it's you. We become so familiar with him, with his association for through nature and and, mm-hmm. and saving. But just as an artist, the man was, he was amazing. And amazing. I was and I was I was surprised. Uh, at the strength of his, I didn't know much about his his beast, his animal art. Oh, it's I, incredible! I, I, yeah, it was the birds I knew, and I think and there's they have uh, at the the, the uh, major central library in, in Toronto in the library system, they have one of the elephant portfolios of uh, of, of his of his uh, of his beasts, and to see those huge pages of those paintings was just overwhelming. Uh, and on some level, I discovered, despite the fact that I have been mostly interested in in, in birds, uh, that I, I think I prefer his animal paintings to the, to the, to the to the bird paintings because they're somehow less mannerist. Mm-hmm. You no, know, but you know they're extraordinary stuff. Now, uh, a name that occurs in both these books, and I think uh, a man who hovers over them to a certain extent is uh, Edward uh, Osborne Wilson. Mm-hmm. A- and one of the things I think these books really realize is this notion of uh, uh, Wilson's of consilience, because mm-hmm. these, I think, are books are perfect mm-hmm. examples of consilience. So mm-hmm. could you explain what that means and and talk about the the influence of Wilson. Well, the the, I've, the there's no I don't think there's as much of a direct influence from him, mm-hmm. but certainly that that his 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 sense his sense of of how the world works, uh, and and of and of and of how what our part in it has been, uh, and even it, uh, to a considerable degree the damage that 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 we do to ourselves by by rejecting our engagement uh, with. This ancient, ancient life on Earth that made us, uh, and that that we still, as you and I sit here, uh, uh, with 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 uh, light, different lights from the sun, uh, and and uh, surrounded by equipment. The fact of the matter is, our body is behaving exactly as it as it did or would have uh, ten thousand years ago. The heart is beating on its own; it doesn't don't have to do anything with that. We're breathing automatically and easily. We're digesting. I'm digesting the muffin I had a little while ago. The body goes on and has always gone on doing this, uh, and 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 yet we we live nearly always in our minds, uh, and we live nearly all always in our our domestication, uh, because we are domesticated species now, um, and so that 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 disjunct between the animal body, which which is in this chair. Um, and 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 our ignorance of it on some level. I mean, if if we if we look after our body reasonably well, if we we cut ourselves, the body heals itself. It does everything for us. It, it that's a, an interesting <laughs> uh, notion yeah. to to think about how how much the body just does without outside of our civilization. That's right, and 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 it, and and it's doing the same things it did. 
20, 30, 40,000 years ago. Now, um, in in this book, you've got it. Um, this book is is harks back to a, a classic other form of book, the bestiary, and, and mm-hmm. you have some some mm-hmm. you have um, numerous excerpts from bestiaries in here. Yeah. So, talk a little bit about that form and and how that kind of you know informed you and, and your experiences. Where as a kid, I loved bestiaries, absolutely, and I did too. There's there's the one that I that I that that opened my mind to the whole thing is in is in the Parker Library at uh, at Christ the King College in Cambridge, England. And it's 14th century, illuminated manuscript. And most of the, the best areas of that time, it was an attempt to explain how it was that, that all animals did God's work, right? Uh, and and that, that, that the personalities of the hyena, for example, would, was much closer to the devil than, than, than to Jesus. Uh, and and that, that it was very much an attempt to have the whole of, of, of the natural animal world explain uh, the Christian story. Uh, and but 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 what you have is is the, there's a the, that wonderful quote from the Peterborough bestiary in the book, which is which is is basically saying is that the beasts and, the, and that the wild animals are free to wander here and there as they will, that they in fact have free will, uh, and 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 what is true is that domesticated animals don't. And, and which I found that, and I, I asked the, the ex-bishop of uh, uh, Anglican bishop of Scotland, all Scotland, was this? Did, did Christianity really feel that that beasts had free will? And and uh, and uh, what his name is Richard Holloway. He's written a, lot, a number of books. He's 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 no, no longer the bishop, and he said sadly, no, that that uh, um, probably not. But I'm, I'm I'm treasuring the one I found. <laughs> now I. This too brings something that I think this book does really well, which is um, to kind of uh, reconcile um, or address or talk to or just lay out in gorgeous, beautiful words and pictures uh, the, I guess, debate between science and religion. I mean, this has both. This is this book is of both worlds. So talk about how this book kind of reconciles that debate between science I, I, and religion. I, I, I wonder if it reconciles it. I, certainly, both are there. Uh, that that uh, I mean, I, one I personally distinguish between between re- religion and, and and theology. You know, I don't I don't think there's much theology in this book. Um, but but and I and I'm 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 a Christian culturally, but I'm not a Christian in theological terms. Mm-hmm. Um, what 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 uh, what you describe as religion, I think it is it is true with small r, uh, or the religious in- instinct mm-hmm. or it spirituality. Has to do with, it has some the tendency to do with the um, with reverence, uh, uh, with with the sacred. Uh, I don't think I don't think you I don't think we can live in the world without some sense of the sacred. I don't or, or, and 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 I don't I have no intention of trying to uh, define that. Um, uh, I, I'm attracted at least intellectually or from a distance to to Shinto, the uh, the Japanese uh, religion, one of the Japanese religions, because because at the heart of that is mystery. You know, you don't have to have you don't have to have all the stories. If you if you somehow accept and acknowledge mystery, and if you and if you have a sense, I mean, if we just pause for a moment, and we think of the extraordinary fact of life on Earth, 
I mean, uh, we, we t- take it all for granted because th- we mostly think just of ourselves mm-hmm. and our of and our favorite flowers or the, the trees that we particularly like. But the, but the, the 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 fact that there is underneath the the Antarctic ice on the bottom of the uh, 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 there are there are creatures there, there are organisms living on the bottom of the ice. There are in, in the in the the vents of volcanoes in the bottom of the sea is filled with creatures down there. And and if that if that isn't a, shouldn't a, a source of what's the word I'm looking for? Well, of of something sacred. I mean, compare it to everything else. One thing that that struck me is a word I've seen many, many times, and you were talking about how humanity has domesticated itself mm-hmm. and that this is a problem for us mm-hmm. because – and that one of the cures for that is to get out in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And, and as many times I've seen the word wilderness, the word wilderness, it's because of the way we pronounce it, it escapes me in general that the world, word wilderness includes the word – Wild, absolutely, absolutely, and and the interesting thing is that in 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 the the Christian Bible, I think there is something like uh, forty, let's say thirty, uh, uses of the word wilderness in the Bible, and all of them are negative. Interesting. They're all negative. They're, they're, it's waste. It's 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 where where nasty creatures are. Um, w- wilderness. In wilderness, there is a notion of freedom. I think that's that's where we uh, where uh, it's very hard to find freedom w- within an ant hill. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you talk about ants too. That we're like ants. Yeah. The that's, ant is an example to all, but not a good one. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. And and and, and we, were, we were. It's so recent that we lived in these huge conglomerations of people all jammed together. Um, I mean, it, it, 120 generations, 100 generations. That's all. There were eighty thousand generations in the in the in the Pleistocene. I mean, all, all of that has happened so quickly, and I don't I don't think we've 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 adjusted to it at all. Mm. I mean, I, th- I think we we've we've learned we've learned to live in it, but I think at great cost to ourselves. And I'm not I mean I'm not suggesting we can go back. I'm, I mean, none of those things are possible. Uh, I mean, we we are we are we are on a kind of fairly relentless relentless uh, uh, intellectually constructed. Society, uh, and there's no way we can turn back. Nor, nor am I. Would I recommend it? <laughs> no, because we have. It would be like going into as we some people sometimes do. The animal rights people, who I have great respect for, but they'll release a whole bunch of animals from a from a from a zoo or something, and they were bred in the zoo. <laughs> what happens to them when they get out there? Nothing. I mean, they couldn't possibly survive, mm. uh, and we couldn't survive either. Now, uh, one of the things that separates us from the animals, so so we think, is language. And in fact, there's this notion of the singularity yeah. where um, it's, a, it's an event after which everything is different. And our invention of language is certainly a singularity in our development. And yet, I, in the beginning of this book, you talk about the language without words. Yeah. Tell us about that. That that's uh, that's a wonderful po- poem from Trans uh, Transform. What's his name? Transtromer. Transtromer. Yes. Yeah. Um, that that's because we can't read it. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, that that obvi- obviously animals communicate and they communicate in all kinds of ways. They don't do it with this highly articulated uh, language that we're so quite rightly proud of. But but the 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 they do. Uh, they tell each other's things. 
No, there's there's no question that that uh, re- reading fairly recently uh, that 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 among certain monkeys they can tell they tell the other ones what kind of predator is around, whether whether it's a jaguar, whether it's a hawk, whether it's whether it's a fox, and they they tell each other what it is. They have a different sound for each one. So they're using sound in a language much like ours. Absolutely, absolutely. And, but but not, but animals communicate in all sorts of ways that in many ways we can't even. Con- conceive of word language is in many ways rather limiting well, compared it is, to it say is, I smell. Think we, I think we, lo- we lose a lot of yes, uh, uh, we, we we lose a lot of other things because we depend so much upon upon, upon language. But someone who but uh, humans that that still live on the land somewhere, the uh, the Australian Aboriginals, for example, a highly developed sense of smell. At least the ones who are still working on the land, or at least living on the land. But what what. One of the things I discovered with the, with the bird book was, was was the extraordinary language of of, of ravens. You know, really, ra- raven, ravens apparently uh, have the highest uh, range uh, ki- range of uh, vocalizations of any animal save man, and that there's there is good reason to believe, although I, uh, it it hasn't been proven scientifically, which makes it difficult in in certain circles. Uh, but a lot of people who have spent time with ravens and watching and studying them. Uh, they they have good reason to believe that 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 each raven has a sound that only it makes. Really? Okay? Yeah, in a group, uh, and and the other and the other ravens don't don't make that sound at all. And when it comes into the into a group, it'll it'll make that sound. Okay, uh, th- there are two instances where it appears that th- that that other ravens will use it. And that is if it dies, that that its that its flock will call out its name. Mm-hmm. All right. That's very interesting, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And and the other the other the other instance, which it seems, you know, I mean, again, this is not in scientific terms. Am I pretending I can prove this? But the people, what I've been reading, that there's very very good reason to believe this is true. So um, that if the mate, if the if the raven's mate uh, is in d- deep trouble, at that point, she or he will call out the mate's name, and the mate will come like a like a a bolt from the blue. One of the things that you talk about is how, um, what, what I guess what I would call it, you know, the the language of life, the the kind of control and echo dependency that that um, animals create, that that the beasts you create, the predators mm-hmm. that you talk mm-hmm. about create, in terms of you know just keeping, uh, making sure they fit within their environment. Yeah, the. the um, 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 say, take a very powerful predator in in in, in his or her territory. <clears throat> it's not to the advantage of that animal to kill anything it doesn't want right then and there. They don't do it. I mean, there's no known instance of a predator extirpating a prey, except us. I mean, and we're not predators anymore. We're we're scavengers, right? <laughs> um, th- so so that that what you have is a balance, um, and and that 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 in that balance there there is. There, there is a an, an an agreement to avoid violence, uh, and the best example of that is is within a wolf pack. Uh, that if 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 a, a a young buck of a wolf a young wolf wants to take on the alpha male, he thinks now I'm ready, I can take over this whole family. It's going to be, and and he makes a move on the alpha male wolf, and discovers that he's moved too soon. That he's not going to win this one. What he does is he reveals his throat, 
or else he rolls over in his back like a puppy. And at that point, the alpha, it's all over. The alpha, the alpha wolf cannot and does not attack him. There is no, there's no punishment. There's nothing. It's over. Because they presumably have discovered over all this passage of time that if you fight, those two animals fight, then one or both of the pack's dominant figures is going to be damaged and the whole, the whole group is compromised. It isn't going to work if you fight. Now, I love the, the piece by Barry Lopez, uh, The Conversation of Death. Yes. That the idea of predators asking for, to take a life. They, 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 and and that's 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 one side of it. That that uh, the the animal the animal who because of fear or because of vulnerability shows nervousness, that animal is offering up its life. It doesn't have any control. Uh, the predator the predators predators always attack the weakest animal they can, because mm-hmm. as we said they, they they can't afford to be hurt. Now that's been going on again forever. Time we just can't imagine how long this has been going on. And so that the healthy prey animals and the weak animals know that eventually one of their fellows, one of their members, is going to say, it's me. And they're going to say that through nervousness. Uh, the, all work, a lot of work done on, on wolves hunting uh, with, with, moose or, uh, with moose in particular is that, they, that if the moose uh, turns and takes a stand, the wolves, most cases, will not attack, even if there's three or four of them. Uh, if the moose runs, they will frequently run along beside it to see how healthy his run is or her run is. And if it's a really healthy run, they'll often turn away. But if there's a sign of weakness, then then they attack. They they can't. They don't want to be hurt. And they're going to get right in there with this great big animal. You know, and the chances of being hurt are very, very significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that that evolution or whatever you call it, time. Has 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 uh, made it very clear to them what you do and what you don't do. It, one thing you say, I think that's really, uh, I think, interesting, and maybe one of the central parts of this book is that there is no wilderness without alpha predators. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Uh, and the reason for this is that that uh, and there's, I've got a wonderful piece uh, uh, from Aldo Leopold called "Thinking Like a Mountain," mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and in that in what 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 he's pointing out is that if if you have uh, some kind of wilderness, uh, healthy wilderness, and that you get rid of all the wolves, then that means the wilderness cannot be maintained. The deer will grow out of control. Uh, they 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 will the ones that would have been would have been taken by wolves because they're weak or because they're old are still there and they're sometimes still breeding. Uh, which means that indeed that the that the gene pool uh, of of the of the deer population drops instead of rises, because they all the, the animals that would otherwise be taken out of it by the wolves aren't, and they do go ahead and breed. Uh, that that uh, w- then what also happens is that there becomes a terrific pressure on the food sources within the wilderness. If you uh, double or treble the the, uh, the the deer population, then they're eating everything off the ground. And you can, I've been in a forest uh, outside of Oxford in England, which was Henry VIII's hunting forest, uh, and it's now a research forest. And you can look for a hundred yards because the deer have eaten everything as high as they can reach. Uh, that's a domesticated forest. It's not a wilderness anymore. 
That's no. That's an interesting notion. A domesticated forest. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love the the just the clip from Darwin that concludes this. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. We may all be netted together. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and well, you know, we were. Mm-hmm. We were certainly all netted together, and we certainly are biologically. Mm-hmm. But our brain. I mean, if if you look if you look at take kids uh, into into nature when they're young, whether by the side, the sea, or or in a meadow. Uh, and they know exactly what to do. They run and they laugh. And they run and they run and they laugh and they laugh. And then we take them, we put them down on their little bony behinds. Uh, and instead of having the body run and laugh, uh, we, we train the mind. Or we try to. That I, and for I, a very long time. As a parent, I can tell you that that whole training uh, the mind thing doesn't work quite as well as we uh, ever hoped to. No, no. But, 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 but the attention is paid for them. I mean... I mean, I'm old enough, you know, that I have to be careful about as if looking back when you know, some kind of good old days. But when I was younger, there was a whole lot more nature and outside play and activity by children mm-hmm. than there has been in the last, you know, because I've got kids through a range of about the youngest is 32 and the oldest one's almost 50. Um, and and that, that, that even they had, had more time. Mm. Uh, now people are afraid for the children to be out there. Uh, when I was a kid, and when my kids, we'd say, "Go out and play." For heaven's sake, go out and play. Yeah, yeah. They'd send me out into the forest, and come <laughs> back for dinner, <laughs> that's, and 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 come back when the streetlights come on. Yeah, but um, th- that's happening far less where I am. Uh, and yet there is again, when that's all the world is full of studies. But I, I was I read one uh, fairly recently, uh, seemed persuasive enough, and said that that uh, if anything, it is safer now out in the streets in Toronto than it was 25 years ago. Well, we just, uh, are, we have a different perception of that now, though. That's right. That, that's what it is. That's what it is. Now, one of the things you talk about is, uh, of course, um, oh, we eat animals. Yes, we do. <laughs> I, I'm a proud meat eater. Yes. I, I'll pan fry a ribeye steak and <laughs> yeah. a heartbeat if you give me one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and talk about the ceremony of, of food. Okay, the uh, again the 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 things I've I've been able to find out in my wandering about in the the literatures is just how much respect um, uh, people who live much closer to the land and much closer to animals and they kill them themselves or the the group kills them uh, is that they they have even even if if it's changed radically they they've come out of a tradition that really quite recently believed that the animals they killed had souls. Mm-hmm. There's a very interesting piece from Nude Rasmussen's book on the intellectual culture of the Glulik Eskimos, which mm-hmm. was from the early uh, 20th century. And he, was, and he was talking to shamans, and one of them said to him, uh, the hardest thing in our lives, one of them, first he said, we do not believe, we fear. Um, and then he said, one of the hardest things that there is is that all the animals that we kill for food or for clothing or for shelter or for weapons or for tools... They all have souls that survive the body after we've killed them, and we are afraid of those souls. And so we must we must celebrate the animal we have killed. We must revere it. We must give thanks to it. Uh, on the on the on the, uh, w- the clear truth of the fact that we must kill to eat, uh, and so do the animals we've killed in many instances. 
Uh, and, and so that what they, you end up with is astonishing ceremonies. And throughout the Chippewa Indians, I've got something uh, about what they did when they kill, if they kill a bear. Uh, or in, in in the 19th century when this was written, uh, how 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 people behave uh, in Latin America if they kill. So we used to do that. All of us did, and then when we got our anthropomorphic gods, we began to thank the god, and we said get grace, uh, and we were thankful to God for the gift of food, not the animals anymore. And now that 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 so so many of us are not are not um, formally religious. We don't take anything. We just we just take the dead animal and we eat it. It, it one of the things that uh, strikes me um, is you 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 mentioned bears. Hmm? Bear you mentioned mm-hmm. bears. Mm-hmm. Bears uh, take up a, a bit of this book, mm-hmm. and they're a very interesting animal. So talk about the the variety of bears and the way that. Um, Different cultures experience them because bears have humanity has a somewhat universal experience with bears. I think so, particularly the, those of us who live in the north, mm. uh, right right around circumpolar. The, the the bear is the big, particularly the the Kodiaks and the and the grizzlies, but also the black bears. Uh, there, there's a number of reasons. There there are a number of reasons why they dominate. The other the other predators in the north, of course, are, are cougars and wolves. Uh, but but bear is 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 uh, is an intriguing one to begin with. Apparently, uh, if you skin a bear, uh, the the skinned body is astonishingly like a human one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and, and when a bear stands up on its on its hind legs, um, you can see that that uh, from a distance it could well look human. For many, many people in the north, uh, traditionally, the, the, we, we, we descended from bears. Mm. Uh, that, that, that they are, they are, they, they are called grandfather in some instances, in some places. And, and, and that, that uh, other cultures in other, society, uh, other, other parts of the world will have other animals that are treated in somewhat the same way. You know. but, but for us, uh, for us and I guess from where you are with, with the mountains so close, bears, bears throughout all this part of the United States are also important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and that they're, I mean, uh, it's, 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 it's hard, it's hard to see how and what we do with it now because we are so, I mean, we all, we now feel that no human being should ever, ever, ever be killed by an animal. It's all right if it's done by cars. You know, I mean, we, we regret the death of someone with a car. We, I mean, and, and, and we, but, but we don't have the same sense of, of being appalled that, that someone was eaten by a cougar. I'd rather be eaten by a cougar than run over by one. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well said, well said. Well, I, particularly if, uh, if Dr. Dr. Livingston is right that you're not going to feel pain or fear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. One thing in both these books that's really, really interesting that makes it so so wonderful to read is that um, it's the way that the entries are laid out. There's two two aspects to this. One is that you just give us a title and you don't tell who it is. And so often we're reading partway into a piece and we don't know who wrote it, yeah. when they wrote it. Yeah. And that's a really interesting way to approach the, these yeah. pieces. Yeah. Well, b- because in, in a sense what I'm assuming, I think uh, – uh, and certainly hoping for, is is that that the constant is our relationship to the to the creatures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter whether whether it's uh, four or five hundred years ago or or yesterday. 
Um, we obviously do change, we, and, and, the, and the text would demonstrate that if, if, if the difference was obvious. But, but that, that our, our relationship with, with animals is what I'm interested in, and, and this huge common ground throughout time with them. Uh, although now, uh, sadly, given our, given our, I began with farming. Mm-hmm. It began with, with, with um, past, pastoral. The important animals became the ones that were ours. Jared Diamond. <clears throat> yeah, that's right. And the land, the land that, that, that we, we became important is the one that we owned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that the, the animals outside of that and the plants that we, plants we didn't uh, plant <laughs> or, and the animals we didn't breed are, are weeds and vermin. Mm. Uh, and, and so, I mean, there's, there's still bounties on wolves around. Uh, and, and, uh, there's still, there's still commercial hunting of, of threatened animals. We treat, we treat, and, and the big defense is that, well, you know, this is the community, this community really needs to have the money that comes in from hunters killing X, Y, or Z, but that's treating wild animals as if they are domestic stock. Well, I think they'd be, we'd be better off having people shoot pickup trucks. The other aspect of this, that these just these different entries that I think is really interesting, is how much people knew a long time ago, how mm. much factual information about mm. the natural world mm. has been around for mm. a long time. And stuff that was common knowledge back then has been kind of uh, buried. It, it's like a, our knowledge in these books are like sediment. Mm-hmm. We, it's all deposited layer upon layer upon layer. And, 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 and it, that's the, the, what's, what's still in our genes. I mean, we, we, we uh, have somewhere in our bodies, uh, uh, and th- th- that believed that our shaman could turn into a lion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's in there somewhere. And it, I think we, we probably encounter it somewhere in our dreams. You know, I think we may encounter it somewhere in our nightmares. We certainly, in the whole that whole range of of horror f- literature and monsters that 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 of the Black Lagoon or whatever, that all these creatures around we, and the fascination with with uh, the abominable snowman. I love or, or, Bigfoot. Or, yeah, and then Bigfoot. Sure, yeah. that 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 out there, they're out there. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, when I write about being on on the land in in, in uh, the Mackenzie Mountain Barrens in, in the Yukon in the Northwest Territories, where there were grizzly bears around, and we never saw them, we saw their tracks. That that sense that sense of menace and power that 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 is there on the landscape. Where 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 is this big bear? You know, I mean, on, on one occasion I, we came back from a walk over the land and discovered that that a grizzly bear whose tracks were on top of my own going out, and it was following me. That's uh, <laughs> that's maybe not the kind of <laughs> well no well I, I you know I I, I, I find I, I find it deeply moving and very important for mm. that to to have encountered that uh, and 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 I don't know what I would do had had something happened I mean I I, I have a friend who took take, took people on, on canoe trips into in, in up into the barrens there and he was taking some and a woman was part of they, they were camping on the land and they're paddling along. And the woman got up early, and she either went out to, to take photographs. We she had her camera with her, or else go to the bathroom. Uh, and she wandered out into the grass, and end up. I seen these photographs. Um, that that uh, she's going out, and then there in the in the 
the, the, the grasses is uh, the head of a bear looking at her. Uh, and then I think she must have had an automatic camera to clicking because she kept taking these pictures, right? Um, and, and then it stood up on its hind legs. It was huge. It was a big grizzly. And then there's a picture of her running towards her. <laughs> and there's a picture of she's clo- it's closer to her. <laughs> and then, and then um, uh, it just brushed by her. It was a threat thing. It knocked her over. Really? Uh, and, and And just then vanished. Um, it took her about three years to get rid, uh, to, to come to terms with that. I can imagine. Now, tell us about your own experience with death. You 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 talk about this in the book. With, with, with well, there was, there was the, the water. Sh- yeah, the, oh, the, the, yeah, the, the sharks. The sharks. Yeah, uh, it, I, I was able to say, you know, the, the only time that I felt I was going to be eaten was. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I went. I went. To, my mother was an Australian, uh, and she didn't get home during the war. Because you know you didn't you didn't go on a boat from from Canada to to uh, uh, Australia in the middle of the war or the Pacific right and mm-hmm. so we went afterwards and I was there for about four months and anyway I arrived fish belly white coming out of a Canadian winter skinny and fish belly white and and then I had all these cousins who were were strapping uh, Australian surfers golden golden youths a little bit older than I. And one of them, my my my, my cousin uh, Malcolm, who's year a couple of years old, and I was trying to teach me how to body surf because there wasn't there were very few boards then, and we were out about a hundred yards on a sandbank with these very substantial uh, waves uh, breakers, uh, and you'd go up to the top and you'd come down to the bottom in the dark, and as I came up at one point, uh, someone sh- shouted shark, uh, and there were about thirty of us out there, and. Uh, and I looked over, and I could see going through a wave these three torpedo shapes, very fast. Uh, and uh, then I went down into the into my feet on between the waves again. I was down on the sand, and when I came up, everybody was heading off for shore, with with I said alarming expertise. I couldn't <laughs> swim that fast, uh, and all I saw was their heels all kicking away as they were going in. And but except my cousin and and one or two of his friends, and he said they're just porpoises. Well, I didn't know them that well. Um, and I looked at all these people going like mad towards shore. Um, and I went down again out of sight of everybody, and I came up. And I discovered to my horror that I'd be letting my country down if I, if I tried to swim into shore. I just was going to have to stay with my cousin. Uh, to this day, I don't know what they were. But it was a lot. It was very alarming. It's, yeah, it was, it was very interesting. Now, this is, <clears throat> there's this uh, concept in this uh, segment of the book that that you talk about, and I I, I love this idea. It, it, the the book is about that. This portion of the book is about the killing moment, and yeah. and, and I love this idea that that you say that animals are cruel, but only humans can be merciless. Yeah, and I'm I'm not even sure that they're they're. I think what they do is cruel. I don't think they are necessarily cruel. If you if you watch uh, uh if you watch um, a cat hunting. That what they are—they're just—they're not angry. They're—they're not—they're not—they're not, they're not po- posing anything. They're doing what they do best. They're doing what, in fact, they are made to do, and that is was, was was is to take that animal without being hurt, and they do it as fast and as quickly as they can. But they do it without anger, and they do it without their their pleasure is in the, the way their body is moving, right. Um, and and so that that I think that may be in the section called "Killing Without Eating." I'm not sure whether mm-hmm. it was or not. Um, 
and 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 that the any kind of hunting that is straight for food, I don't think it is cruel, uh, unless you unless you unless you bungle it. <laughs> uh, in which case, you may, yourself may be an, an hazard. Ab- ab- I mean. ab- absolutely, but it, but it, it's such it, it is such a fundamentally important and natural thing. I, it, it's fascinating too that you talk about you have a, an excerpt from uh, two people who are are killing coyotes in, in Canada, and, yeah. and, and their they, their quote is, "I just want to have fun." That's right. That's right. And 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 the no. No, almost no animal. There are there are some interesting interesting exceptions, I think, but almost almost no animal will kill for fun. Mm. You know, uh, I, one of the things I came across at, before I started this book was a, I read an article where it said that someone doing studies on the brains of cats said that that um, because cats will play with a butterfly, they're mm-hmm. not going to eat it. You know, uh, that that that. Uh, when cats hunt, they use one part of their brain, but when they do, they play with animals. They're using another part of their brain, which which is really ominous. If it, and I've never been able to follow. I've searched. I've had people search for it. I don't know where I read it. I, so if, if you ever hear who 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 read this piece, is please let me know, because if it's true, that may be the, the part of the brain that torturers use. Wow, that's. A- <laughs> <laughs> No, and I, but I, no, I don't know because it's, I, I it's never the could cat brain, not the lizard brain. No, yeah, or if the cat has that part of the brain, I mean, because we got so much in common with so many of the mammals, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and in terms of internal organs and all kinds of stuff, and chemical makeup and and and, and testosterone, all kinds of stuff. Um, but if if there is, if there is a, an area in the cat's brain that that where it play, where it hurts things for fun, uh, anyway. That, that's another question. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a but that's a good answer. <laughs> now you, you talk in a. <clears throat> I'm was glad to see that you talked about things that aren't real, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and we you talk about the you know you give us a, a clip from Angela Carter's The Werewolf and and you talk about the Manticore and and uh, Shiva and these kind of human monsters and mm-hmm. I think this is an interesting. Uh, perception of, you know, monsters as being, you know, the giants, the, the, the ch- child-eating giants of the forest. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. It, talk about how we create these things out of our minds, or do we? Well, the, the one, of, one, of the, one of the ways of, of approaching it, I think, is, is uh, the, uh, there's a very interesting uh, piece in one of Bruce Chatwin's books, I think it's in the, the song lines. Where he's talking to someone who's been doing a lot of work on a on a fossil cat, a, a false saber tooth cat, called Dinophilus, mm-hmm. and Dinophilus uh, was a like a jaguar, a powerful animal with with heavy. It doesn't run down the prey. It's got it takes them from ambush. And it's got big shoulders and forward forearms, four legs, I guess. Um, and and that that some, some think that that. that there's a very good reason to believe it was a specialist upon our 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 our, our ancestors, our forebears. It specialized in hunting us, mm. um, and and that that some that it may well have been Dinophilus that drove us out of the forest and into the grasslands. Where we could stand up and see. We couldn't. We couldn't be. Uh, there are, there are caves, fossil caves, in which down at the bottom of the cave there are masses of bones of our of our forebears, and also it was clear that that uh, Dinophilus was living down there. 
and and that one of the things that that uh, Denophilus would do would uh, the humans would shelter in the mouth of the cave, at least the early human, and Denophilus would come up and take one down for supper uh, in the dark. Uh, now, if 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 that a beast coming up out of the out of the, out of, the uh, out of earth, out of the center of the earth, to take one of your fellows, or indeed perhaps you, down and consume and tear, tear and gnaw. And, if that isn't the, the the beast of the unconscious, I don't know what is. <laughs> no. No, uh, and 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 that there are apparently uh, there are jaguars that will do that to chimpanzees. Even now, they're doing it in some place. They're living down the bottom of the, the cave. Uh, or, or some kind of cat. So that, that 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 when you, as a child, you're going into your bedroom and the lights out, you you what's under the bed that's going to grab you, you know? Uh, or when you're coming up out of the cellar when you're even older and you turn the light out and you for some reason you feel you should hurry up, you know? <laughs> you know it, it, I mean, it, that, that there's going to be those kinds of memories. I've um, a friend of mine, a mentor, in fact. Uh, he's, he 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 maintained that one of the reasons that there were phobias about snakes and to a lesser extent about cats. Uh, is that those are the only animals that could take us out of the trees at night? Interesting. You know, and and so that you you have that that and cats are very important religions and so forth. We'll talk about cats because they're you know one of the most beautiful. It's an inter. The big cats are so interesting because they're gorgeous. That's they're, right. They're 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 beautiful. I, I, there's a great quote about somebody uh, looking at a, a leopard. Or I think it's a leopard and saying you know. This the only person who wears this fur is a gangster's mall. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the places. It's, it's, it's cheetah, cheetah in the Moscow Zoo. I think. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, no, no, they're, they're 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 the really very powerful images because because they're we we know them in the small cats that, that and they're they're cats all around in 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 the north of, as well as the south. But when you get to the really big ones, the lions and the tigers. Uh, and the cheetahs. Uh, we, do, we don't see them in the wild here, nor do you see them in, in Europe for a long time. Nevertheless, they have a, a, a really compelling presence in our imagination. Uh, and and, it's, and, and what, what intrigues me, why it, is that, why it is that the lion is so dominant. Uh, and and, I, and I, I kept meaning to check and see whether the lion is dominant in India as well, because they have both lions and tigers uh, mm-hmm. in, in India. And I, I, I haven't gotten around to it yet, but the, the, they are mythic creatures. The lion, particularly, uh, uh, in all, in, 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 there, there are lions in Japanese, and there's never any lions there. Mm. <laughs> and That's the lions, the, the drawings of of, of, of of Japanese lions don't look like lions. I mean, they they, they have flat faces and so forth. The thing that. Um there, there's also in this book one of the thing, nice things that you can do in a book like this is to just give us, you know, so much great art. And one of the, I have to ask, there's a number of images like this one that's on the cover um, by an uh, unknown 19th century artist, and it's they're really gorgeous. Where did you find these? I mean, those are there's there's a number of images. Are they all from the same person? Uh, I, I some some of them are. There, there's I, I bought uh, at a flea market in Paris. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was a page out of out of some nineteenth century book, which you know people will buy uh, and cannibalize them and take the pages out and mm-hmm. then put them in and like like a, an art print, and I and I bought uh, I think three, uh, uh, at least one of them was I bought in London at a flea market. I haunted around looking for these things because I don't have to get permission when I to use them. <laughs> uh, but the, the amazing thing about this, I mean, it's such a clear and strong image. But but the, the, it was one of about uh, uh, about probably eight 
on a, on a, on a sheet of paper, uh, like computer paper. Mm. It was very small, but it was clear and so well done that it could be blown up. Now, uh, one of the the monsters that that you you talk about is is the chimera. Is that chimera? Yeah, chimera. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think that this is an important uh, monster for us because we're in the process of creating that monster. Yeah. Well. And you end with a with a this book with a a, a vision that seems like something out of a science fiction novel. Not a not a happy one either. <laughs> well, I mean, what? It's hard to know how to write to, how to deal with that because one of the things that I know a lot of people who are writing books out of the conservationist instinct or for a love of nature or whatever it may be, mm-hmm. and and because things are 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 in so many areas appear to be so dire. One of the difficult things is how do you end your book mm-hmm. without without saying all right. It's all finished, you know, or whatever. <laughs> uh, and then people keep asking you, you know, you're optimist or pessimist and so forth. Um, and so that as we as we come to an end, I mean, there's no there's no question uh, that all of us doing this kind of thing, and there's all kinds of people, and a lot of people doing it very well. Mm-hmm. Um, is is that it's 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 there's a lot of darkness around. Mm. Uh, but but that I, I'm old I'm old enough to. To have uh, after the Second World War, after Hiroshima, after Nagasaki, and after all the nuclear tests and the hydrogen bombs, and Einstein saying that that there was going to be a, could well be a chain reaction that would destroy the Earth, mm-hmm. that we all—I mean, I, I had, and everybody I knew had nuclear war dreams, mm-hmm. uh, and and then it, and then it became clear that should we should we to should we despair, then we wouldn't need a nuclear war to destroy our culture or our society, that the despair would do it. <laughs> right, uh, and the same is true now. Mm-hmm. That that it, uh, we're we're going to lose species, and we're going to lose we're going and and that uh, in 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 evolution, creatures only change in re, in response to crises. Well, we're, we're making cases, a few of those now. That's right, or or, or catastrophes. You know mm-hmm. that, that that that's when change comes. I mean, evolution itself is a very is a radically uh, conservative movement. That the lungfish coming up out of the water, a dried up pool, heading for another pool with water in it, doesn't want to be a rabbit. <laughs> it wants to be a lungfish, right. and it wants it wants to get into that water and put and have exactly the same thing. And the fact that that uh, that new uh, uh, creatures, no, new animals, new forms appeared, is incidental. It's because the process of of, of maintaining yourself mm-hmm. collapsed, mm-hmm. failed. So I think that, that that things are going to be done to us by by the changes. And, and and one just hopes that it's gradual enough for us to, to accommodate it. One of the things that, that interests me, you talk about human nature. Sorry? You talk about human nature. <laughs> and, and I love the, the piece by, by uh, Haruki Murakami where he talks about the forest was inside him. The forest is... Try, 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 ask me that another way. I'm not sure exactly... Well... Uh, in a sense, we we look at a, the, all these things around us. Yes, I mean that we're sitting in right now. It's a high tech studio. Yep. We're surrounded by yep. <clears throat> what we would normally call, say, this is none of this is natural. But no. humans are natural. We're yep. just doing these are just this is just a particularly comfortable uh, anthill. That well, it is, and it's also. I mean, all these things in this room are are, are uh, made by our brain. Mm-hmm. 
you know. And and our brain is, is it, in some there it sits inside us. Uh, that 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 the measure the measure unless unless we're an athlete a runner you know we're in the the Olympics or we're using our body that way or a wrestler or whatever it may be, uh, but and, and even when you, if it's a football player then it's 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 a mind constructed thing that the body is then doing performing within, uh, but nearly everything we do is now the brain, mm. uh, and and that that. Uh, if we are domesticated animals, which I believe we certainly are, then uh, we're, we're an anomaly because we're an evolved domesticate. All the other ones we domesticated. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and and th- that, but we uh, we we are we are unable to live without our farmer. Right, and our farmer, our farmer is 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 one our is our civilization, which has is is glorious at its best. Uh, and 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 it, it it isn't so fantastic if you're living in a in in a refugee camp for for people who've been displaced by climate change or war or whatever it is. Uh, it's easy for us to sit here and see how wonderful this, this, our civilization is, but we're as I think I say in the book, we're like polo ponies. You know, we're, we 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 uh, we have a really good life and 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 we're well fed and we're groomed. We have a nice stable, or we're Kobe beef. You know, they massaged and and given beer to drink. Uh, but the vast majority of the world doesn't have that. Nevertheless, that that our civilization uh, uh, and and our technology uh, determines how we live and and how we remain alive. So that's domesticated. But but the body, I mean, we we we're, I mean, it's like it's like the body is changing actually. I mean, we won't get into that because it goes a long way. But the the characteristics of of domestication domesticated animals is really interesting. Mm. To begin with, they don't recognize danger. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think we do either. <laughs> well, that, that, yeah, that's part of what that, this book is for. Part, just part of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. I've been speaking with Graham Gibson. His new book is The Bedside Book of Beasts. Thank you for speaking with me, Graham. It's been a great pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.